Hello, Capital Region. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the, unse- on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Denley's report on Tom, on Tom DiAnapoli's decision against divesting from the billions of dollars the state's pension fund has in Exxon and other oil and gas companies. Then, we hear an excerpt from the latest Saratoga Black Lives Matter press conference where they address the state attorney general's report of a, quote, unconstitutional official policy, end quote, of retaliation against them. After that, Ellie Irons speaks with members of Soil Factory who came, to the, who came to the sanctuary earlier this month to tell us about their organization. Later on, we welcome artist and musician Jordan Taylor Hill to the studio. Finally, we hear about an opportunity for filmmakers to submit their films to WMHT for the TV Film Short Film Showcase. But first, here are the headlines. Saratoga Black Lives Matters plans to file against the city of Saratoga Springs after a report from the state attorney general found that Saratoga Springs officials retaliated against the group in the summer of 2021. Black Lives Matter leader Lexis Figueroa said that he would be seeking charges against former Mayor Meg Kelly, who directed the police to initiate an unfounded Child's Protective Services investigation against him. Our second story brings you excerpts from the Saratoga Black Lives Matter press conference in response to this report. The Capital Region Land Bank, part of Metroplex, will demolish a dozen vacant buildings in Schenectady County in the coming months. The land bank demolished 12 buildings in downtown Schenectady last year in the area of Erie Boulevard, and and plans for seven other demolitions are in the works for Albany Street in the Hamilton Hill neighborhood. The Gazette reports that the future of the Flint farmhouse from the 1820s that was gifted to the village of Scotia around 30 years ago for public use is unclear following a recent report that estimates the building needs upwards of $700,000 in repair and upgrades. The building, which has been used by the village historian, has been closed since COVID. The Albany Common Council has overwhelmingly approved a measure to add fluoride to the city's water supply. Though it will be another year before it actually happens, many dentists support the use of fluoride to decrease tooth decay, t- tooth decay, especially among children. Others oppose the use of fluoride as it is a toxic material that can cause neurological damage to the brain. The Times Union reports that Cafe Conmel, operated out of the Gilderland Public Library, has closed after the owner complained that the business faced racism and harassment from both patrons and library staff. Police are, investigating swastika, police are investigating swastika that was spray-painted on a private contractor's trailer near Congress Street and 8th Street in downtown Troy on Friday morning. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. On February 14th, 2024, New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli announced that he largely decided against divesting from the billions of billions of dollars the state's pension fund has in Exxon and other oil and gas companies. Mark 
Dunley spoke with Ruth Foster about why the Co- Climate Coalition feels that DiNapoli has made a bad decision. We're talking with Ruth Foster, who's one of the organizers of Divest New York, which is the uh, campaign to get the various uh, New York State um, public pension funds to divest from fossil fuels. And last Wednesday, the um, state controller, Tom DiNapoli, announced his decision with respect to um, whether or not the Exxon and other oil and gas companies were, um, you know, doing a good job at this point in terms of their climate impact. Um, so, so Ruth, what did the uh, state controller announce in terms of uh, future investments in uh, Exxon and Shell and, and Chevron and the rest? We were really upset to find out that um, for some reason, um, the controller doesn't believe that Exxon, Shell, Occidental, BP are companies that need to be divested from. Um, he did announce that he would divest uh, the passive funds or the active funds from Exxon, which amount to about 25 million out of about 500 million of investments in Exxon that DiNapoli holds. Um, so we were very upset that um, we don't consider this a divestment at all. Um, divestment isn't divestment if you don't divest from the most evil fossil fuel companies. So did Mr. DiNapoli, um, you know, release any evidence? Um, you know, he, he did say Exxon wasn't doing a good job, but then he didn't want to divest because it was called the passive index. But the other companies like Shell and Chevron and Occidental, did he release any information showing that they have now committed to really leading the way to a clean energy future? We have not seen any information. We know that they went uh, through a climate screen. Um, we've asked for the criteria and we haven't been able to get a hold of what criteria they're using. Clearly their criteria is wrong. Um, it doesn't make any sense because these companies are continuing to pump out fossil fuels and, and climate warming greenhouse gas emissions um, and making billions of dollars in the process. Um, we have really no clue why they picked Exxon as worse than the others. Um, maybe they are worse than the others, but they're all pretty outrageously bad when it comes to climate. Now, I understand that maybe three years ago, um, the uh, state control had reached sort of an agreement with the uh, legislature who had a bill to require the state uh, common retirement fund to divest from fossil fuels, had pretty much a majority of sponsors in the, the Senate and all, almost a majority in the Assembly. And in exchange for withdrawing the bill, um, you know, the controller committed to a process to, in his word, decarbonize the um, state pension funds. You know, how is like, you know, say Senator Kruger, who was the lead sponsor of the bill in the Senate, you know, how has she responded to what uh, um, Tom DiNapoli is proposing at this point? Um, sure, yeah. Senator Kruger did put out a press release um, saying that she too was very upset about the lack of divestment from Exxon and the other large oil companies. Um, but I mean, we, we've been working on this campaign for many, many years, and I think it was 2020-ish um, that DiNapoli did agree to divest, basically because um, partly because of the bill that was putting pressure on him, um, and he decided to 
instead of waiting for the bill to pass and being forced to divest to set his own terms. Um, and he agreed um, to divest on a schedule. So the first year he divested from some coal companies, and we thought that was pretty good. The next year he divested from a few tar sands companies, and that was kind of okay, although we weren't clear that that was the best thing. And then um, this year he was supposed to divest from the big oil and gas companies, and that's where everything fell apart, where um, he's decided somehow that these companies are too big to divest from, and we want to make it clear that um, divestment means stopping funding climate destruction, which is ruining our planet. And without divesting from Exxon, he is ignoring the whole purpose um, of agreeing to divest. Well, this seems a little confusing because he did say, at least with Exxon, that they do not have a good climate record, both looking backwards, but also moving forward but that he's going to divest only from, what, $25, 27000000 million, but he's going to keep what he calls another $500 million in Exxon because there's some type of passive index investment. What is this distinction between passive and active investments? Well, I'm a financial advisor, and I try not to learn too much about this stuff. But from what I can understand, um, the passive investments means they're basically investing in mutual funds and they don't have control over what is being divested. But the reality is, is that um, that doesn't make any sense because Dinapolis, um overseeing billions of dollars um, and any climate fund, any fund would be willing to take on um, their investments in a passive manner with some restrictions on fossil fuels. We don't see why with as much money as um, Dinapoli has in the Common Retirement Fund, why they can't set the terms of what the passive fund would do. Yeah, I believe the overall size of the Common Retirement Fund in New York is about $240 billion. And I think the one of the argument is if whatever passive index fund he wanted to create Wall Street would be happy to do that uh, in order to collect fees. How have other um, pension funds, say uh, the New York City Pension Fund, or even I understand recently the, um, I think maybe it was the Dutch uh, Common Retirement Fund, how have they decided when when they've looked at the um, climate record of these oil and gas companies? Yeah, both New York City and the Dutch pension funds have divested from both active and passive funds. Um, so it's definitely not clear that that Dinapoli can't. Um, he should be able to divest from the passive funds as well as the active. Um, we don't really understand his reasoning on that. So what happens next? You know, he, he's made his determination, but it's not like a war or anything. Um, are you guys going to continue to try to press him to divest or fold up the tent, what happens now? Yeah, we've well, we've been working on this campaign for, I can't even remember how many years. Um, I mean, I guess 10 years, including when we worked to get the New York City Pension Fund to divest um, was when the campaign started. Um, and then we switched to working on the Napoli campaign and we are not gonna stop. Um, we're continuing to pressure Napoli and um, we've called for a meeting with him. We've called for public hearings, and we will be um, talking to him 
whenever and wherever we can in the streets um, and at meetings to tell him that divestment has to include Exxon and the big oil companies. Um, this is just not acceptable what he has done. So we have about 90 seconds left. I also understand that you continue to work on trying to get uh, the New York State Teachers Retirement System to divest. How's that going? Yeah, um, that was our third campaign. Um, and they have, um, we think, five for $6 billion invested in fossil fuels. Um, and the teachers pension fund includes teachers from both upstate and Long Island. Um, and we have um, had a major campaign. We had lots of the local teachers unions have put in resolutions um, calling for divestment. The state, New York State Teachers Union has um, done divestment resolutions for three years. We've had meetings with um, the leadership and the board of directors. We've had rallies and we are going to continue working on that. Um, if you want more information about both the Denapoli campaign and the teachers campaign, you can reach us at divestny.org. And the last 30 seconds, how has the divestment effort, uh, you know, globally gone in terms of trying to divest uh, various public pensions and churches and synagogues from um, fossil fuels? Um, yeah, there's been a huge campaign um, internationally, and um, it's amounted to trillions of dollars in divestment from the fossil fuel industry. Um, we believe that's very important because it makes it harder for the industry to grow and it stigmatizes the industry. And basically, it's a question of morality. Can we continue to fund climate destruction when we know um, it's just when we know that fossil fuels are destroying our climate. We've been talking with Ruth Foster, uh, Divest New York, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that was Mark Dunley speaking on the New York State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli's announcement that he largely decided against divesting from the billions of dollars in the state's pension fund in uh, exile Exxon and other oil companies and gas companies. Members of Saratoga Black Lives Matter held a press conference at City Hall on Thursday to respond to the state attorney general's report, which found that former mayor May Kelly, former public safety commissioner Robin Dalton, and former police chief Shane Crooks engaged in a, quote, unconstitutional official policy, end quote, of retaliation against them in the summer of 2021. In this excerpt of the press conference, we hear from Black Lives Matter leader Lexis Figueroa, TJ Sanger, Sanger, a a program director for Saratoga Black Lives Matter, and their lawyer, Mark X. Mishler. Mark S. Mishler. One was responding to the city with multiple lawsuits, probably a class lawsuit that we filed against the city. As far as Meg Kelly, I'm going to be trying to press charges for um, making a false report to CPS which is a uh, violation of our rights, and it is a uh, Class A misdemeanor, as well as Chief Crooks as well, former Chief Crooks. We're going to be pressing charges on him as well. I may, I'm going to be speaking to my lawyer. If it's, if it's okay, I may be going down to follow a complaint as soon as we get done with this press conference. So we're going to be looking for charges. We're looking for a justification. We're looking for justice. Uh, you see, Robin Dalton says she had a bloodlust, right? We have a justice lust. We have a lust for justice. That's what gets me excited. Freedom gets me excited. 
Equity gets me excited. Diversity makes me excited. That's what I like to hear. So we'll be we'll responding to the uh, Attorney General's office, asking for them to continue to look into the other doings of Syracuse Police Department and the city of Syracuse Police Department. Because we know that this is not the end all. We know that it's not the first time they violated rights. We know that they started to violate our rights in 2020 and we haven't forgotten. We know that July 30th should be looked into more than what it was. We know that they, came, they, they said that they came with a tank from Iraq. But what else did they do? What were their plans that day? How much money went towards this? The people want to know that people aren't going to have it. We aren't going to have it anymore. And we, I think we've shown time and time again that whether you keep us in cells for 12 hours with no water or food and no medication and you separate us, give us no mask, you want to rip us in front of our kids, you want to rip us off while we're working, you want to come and rip somebody up from college, we still are going to keep on coming. We're going to keep on coming. When the empire strikes back, we come back even harder, plain and simple. Not a game. This is our lives. I think people need to realize that this is not like it's not a joke. Like, this is our livelihoods. Our children had to deal with this. Our family members had to deal with this. We get threats to this day now on our social media's website and to our phones because of this. We get we and now we have a new public safety commissioner, like you said, Tim Cole. Not not any better. Not any better. Not any better. They all come from the same cloth. If you read the report, it says that the conservative party leader was involved in a lot of this. These are conservative Republicans. These same people will run our city now. I've said it before. The people of Syracuse Springs have been duped. And we will make sure that the people who are elected now will never be reelected in this city again. Hello, everyone. My name is TJ Sangare. Uh, I'm the program director here with Saratoga Black Lives Matter. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I have a simple and straightforward message for everyone. As shocking as this report was for many people, the contents of it was of no surprise to my group, nor many of the people who have been involved or followed this movement over the past couple of years. If anything, this damning report exemplifies many of the criticisms that SSPD and the city of Saratoga Springs have faced, not only due to their actions towards us, but also towards the heartbreaking death of Daryl Mount. Transparency? I see none of it. Accountability? I see none of it. An attempt to bridge the gap between those running the city and the marginalized community members in it, I see none of it. What I do see is a pattern of culture amongst those in power, one where people such as Robin Dalton, Meg Kelly, Crooks, and James Montanino abuse the power that was entrusted to them by their citizens and constituents. But don't think that just because many of these people are out of their positions means that these problems are solved as these are systemic issues that must be addressed at the root, from top to bottom. And if you don't believe me, look at the current public safety commissioner, Tim Cole, who only waited a few hours to do an interview where he questioned the validity of the, uh, of the report that was published. Let me tell you something, Tim. Now is not the time to justify civil rights violations, nor, nor is it the time to invalidate any of our experiences. Because clearly I wasn't lying when I said I was told I had to drive three hours back from college or else troopers would be sent to Vermont to arrest me and bring me back. Mm -hmm. Clearly we weren't lying when we said that we would never keep someone from getting their heart medication because everyone's safety is our number one priority. Clearly we weren't lying when we said that certain city council members headed out for us as Robin Dalton said in her own words that she wanted to repeatedly punch and kick Chandler Hickenbottom and my cousin Molly Dunn in their faces. 
No, now is not the time to justify any of that. It's a time for people to listen to those who have been impacted, and it's time to change this culture. The promise of democracy is not just a it's not just some abstract notion. What it means is that the people who live in a community have actual control and input and they are listened to and they are part of the process in a meaningful way and that their concerns are listened to in a meaningful way and that they can engage meaningfully. And this is not just some nice idea. This is how this is supposed to work in the city of Saratoga Springs, in Saratoga County, in New York State, and in this country. And betrayals of democracy, such as what happened in the city of Saratoga Springs by the leadership, by the mayor, the commissioner of public safety, the police chief, the assistant police chief, and many, many others. These are not abstract issues. These are real. It affected real people's lives. It caused real harm to real people when democracy or the promise of democracy is betrayed as it was. It was betrayed in ways that, while we, we thought we knew pretty much all the ways that they had betrayed democracy and violated people's rights, um, we learned some new things. We learned the depth of their um, depravity uh, in this report, wonderful report from the Attorney General's office. We learned how angry the democratically elected or appointed leaders of the city of Saratoga Springs were. What were they angry about? They were angry that people in Saratoga Springs, black people and others and allies, came together to say that there is a sordid history of racism in Saratoga Springs and it's time to address it. And for those in power, that was something they just could not accept. Rather than engaging in real dialogue, rather than looking honestly at the history of Saratoga Springs and the reality that's faced by people now, not just history, instead of that, they took every possible conceivable step, and honestly, some steps that I could never have conceived of in order to undermine what these activists and what the community was demanding. And so now we're in a position where we have, due to the extraordinary work of the Attorney General's office, a blueprint for exactly what happened, the depth of the betrayal, the depth of the depravity, the depth of the racism that led to that depravity on the part of these officials. And we now know what happened. We knew most of it already, but now we really have it clearly. And it gives us uh, a blueprint for how to move forward. And the blueprint has to be that the city of Saratoga Springs and Saratoga County and New York State can never again tolerate the kind of actions by elected officials and appointed officials as what happened here in Saratoga Springs over the past several years. The blueprint also is that we cannot allow any governmental body in New York State to tolerate or to ignore the depth of racism and the history of racism and the legacy of racism and the current uh, pain caused by existing racism in their communities that it's important for people to speak out, to organize together, to stand together, and that's what Black Lives Matter in Saratoga has done for the past three years. Almost four years, almost four years. Almost four years. Um, uh, remarkable work by Saratoga BLM during this period and, and others, and that work will continue um, because the problems have not been solved. We just have a very clear picture now of exactly how bad the problems were here. So 
I, I just want to close by saying it's, it, it has been and continues to be a great honor to represent many of the members of character of the BLM. Um, as a, a sort of older person with gray hair, I feel I can say that this is inspiring, that these people who are all, they're not all young, but they're all younger than me, um, <laughs> give me great hope for the future, great hope for what we can all do together as we fight racism, as we fight injustice, and we move together. Um, as Alexis mentioned, there's still one case pending. We've had every single case dismissed, yep. except for one that's still pending. A, um, I'm a little constrained is what I can say because I'm a lawyer in a pending case, but you know, it's a ridiculous case. Uh, and uh, we're going to keep fighting that. And hopefully we'll end up, Saratoga BLM will end up with a perfect record of 100% of all of the cases brought against and dismissed. That's our goal. So thank you all for being here. That was an excerpt from the latest Saratoga Black Lives Matter press conference. We have reached out to Saratoga Black Lives Matter in hopes to get an interview. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Austin. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, WCAALP 107.3 FM Albany. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Chile, New York, also streaming at mediasanctuary.org. Soil Factory is a space for exploring interactions between social, arts, and scientific networks in Ithaca, New York. Members of Soil Factory traveled to the sanctuary in Troy in February this year. I'm Ellie, Nature Lab's community science educator. I'm back with another segment in a series of interviews with people associated with the Soil Factory, an art science initiative in Ithaca, New York. Today, I'm talking with Anna Yaleggio, an artist and professor who works with the Soil Factory. Welcome, Anna. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Anna. Um, I am currently an assistant professor of studio art up at Wells College, and I'm originally from Vermont, and I've been in the Ithaca region for about three and a half, four years now. It seems like um, the Soil Factory, kind of like the sanctuary where I'm reporting from is pretty multifaceted. So I've been enjoying asking each person I've interviewed to define and describe it. Could you tell me how you would describe the Soil Factory? <laughs> I love that. And actually, um, I made I made us an Instagram page once as an experiment, which was a failed experiment, but a fun one. And the only description is ask a different member, get a different description. <laughs> I guess my version is, is uh, the Soil Factory seems to be a place that is about freeing the people who arrive there from the expectation of professional or professionalized behavior in their respective fields in art and science and policy and conservation, et cetera, to focus on the sort of socially generated and more delightful forms of working through pressing um, social, ecological, and conservation issues that are specific to our watershed and to our region. So I heard it once described as a place where scientists could behave as though they were in an artist studio and where artists could behave as though they were in a science lab. So it's kind of on this sliding scale of what is a workspace supposed to look like and what are we supposed to look like when we're doing work? And what is that? how does it change when we're 
focused on being together and actually enjoying each other's company. I love that. I saw that one of your focuses with the Soil Factory is on the Artist in Residence program. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So the Soil Factory as an infrastructure is a giant warehouse, mixed industrial on the edge of um, agricultural zoning. And one of the many things that used to be was a burned dairy gas station. And so there's a little gas station sort of cigarettes and snack facility, this little cinder block cabin on the edge of the parking lot. And so some other artists and I were really excited by the possibility of um, being able to be generous to visitors and making a place for people to land so that they could come and be a part of the community. And we would kind of build our network um, through generosity by simply having like a comfortable place where you could stay if you wanted to stay for a week or two. And so we started with just like throwing out the trash and giving it a good paint job and getting it some nice rugs. But then over the past few years, we've been able to successfully get grant funding so that we can pay artists really generously to come and be a part of the soil factory and build relationships over time and make projects that sort of enrich what we're already doing and bring in new perspectives and new ideas that none of us have seen before. That sounds really great. And congratulations on being able to fund people. That's such a, a key thing for artists to be able to travel and spend time. So that's really great. Yeah. Folks can learn more about what's going on with the artist residency program. Is it like, are you inviting people specifically? Um, or great question. Yeah. So we're, we're in the process of figuring of uh, refining our curatorial strategy, it started with um, invitations. So it would be like we would invite people and then we would ask, you know, as part of as part of coming into here, could you nominate someone who you think would really benefit from this time and space, but also who would, you know, like challenge us, stimulate us, grow this program. So it was invite only, but it was it was also nomination based by artists. So artists were tending to think of people who would um, address some of the gaps in what we were imagining, which was a really nice, uh, it was a nice way to have the program reflected back to us. Um, we're all volunteers. It's a very, there, no, very few people are compensated for their work with the Soil Factory in, other, in anything other than like a really good time and a, you know, a really awesome community. Um, so that means that we can't, we don't really have the capacity ourselves to do things like run an open call but we're, this is how we're thinking of like, if we want to go that way, which is a different form of access, then how can we support that process? How can we also compensate artists and scientists to be our jury to open up the idea of what an open call is supposed to do and how can we prevent it from sort of succumbing to some of the dangers of over-professionalization that we've all seen in other artist projects elsewhere in our lives. Um, I would say that to me, what defines the artist in residency program at the soil factory is everything I've ever encountered as a professional artist myself in other organizations that felt less generous, less considered, less experimental and less fun than it could have. And then trying, <laughs> trying to think of a different way to do things ourselves. Um, and also just paying people really well. <laughs> yeah. If folks wanted to learn more, um, we're so porous. It really just takes, um, write us an email, come to one of the open meetings, come to any piece of programming and and talk to somebody and like, congratulations, you're part of the Soil Factory, pitch us an idea. 
I would love to turn a little bit to your own work as an artist and your personal story. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how it relates to what you see um, happening, this kind of interdisciplinary creative work at the Soil Factory? Totally. Thank you. That's a really nice question. Um, my background as an artist is in collective art projects. So for me, there is a one-to-one -one relationship. Um, I, if, if I see a bunch of people coagulating and doing something weird, I beeline for it. <laughs> I'm like, great. I know. I understand this. I want to be part of it. Um, I'm from Vermont originally, and I grew up kind of in the rain shadow of Bread and Puppet Theater, which is maybe the most radical idea of what collective art is. Like if you show up to a bread and puppet production, congratulations, you are in the show. No one is more or less important than anyone else in terms of who's performing, who's receiving the performance. Um, it's incredibly egalitarian. And so I think that shaped my brain and I've gone out into the world um, in the decades since looking for that, trying to make that happen, trying to make art and performance that are about destroying the fourth wall, however that may appear. Um, so I've done a lot of stuff. I've, I've done like public access cable. I've done community radio. I've done traveling theater groups living on a trash barge on the Mississippi. Um, and then this filters into my individual work as an artist because I'm not much of an object making artist. I'm not much of a like single use idea artist. Everything I do is kind of about trying to gather people or gather ideas or gather focus um, in real time and space. And um, if I'm really honest with myself, I make art because I just want to keep making friends. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. The emergence, yeah. I mean, it's been there forever, but the emergence and labeling of, of socially engaged art, um, you know, has its drawbacks, certainly in terms of professionalization, but also, you know, just calling it what it is, that we are social beings and we want yep. to and call that an art form. Um, I think yeah. that's fair. And what you just talked about in terms of your your broad base of interests and how they come together in the soil factory makes me think that um, you would, yeah, you would fit in well at the sanctuary as well. <laughs> so <laughs> we had bread and puppet here. Anyone who's been with the sanctuary for a long time might remember a parade um, down sixth Avenue It was before my time, but um, sounds like it was, it was fabulous. So um, yeah. maybe in our last <laughs> minute, um, I wonder if you have any dreams for the future for soil factory, if there's upcoming specific events or just something you're particularly excited to bring into being. Um, what a great question. Something that I'm excited to bring into being one of our first artists in residence who's a dear friend um, of mine who makes theater in Philadelphia, um, sort of in this very funny way proposed that we make a human poop powered um, Ferris wheel. Whoa. And so if there was ever money for that, like I'm very in, I would love to have that happen. But then <laughs> maybe it is Sounds incredible. <laughs> like we have to have that in the world. So that would be great. Um, at a smaller scale, we have done a lot of potlucks and um, I kind of think that potlucks and performances, like unprofessional performances are like the best kind of disaster preparedness known to society. And so I want to, I want to put together more of those with that specific 
um, skill set in mind. Like it is actually really important for us to gather and enjoy each other's company and to talk about what we need and what we have, because um, from an ecological and social perspective, we really need these skills now more than ever. I couldn't agree more. So thanks so much, Anna, for answering my questions and sharing your work with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I can't wait to learn more about the sanctuary. This is our third interview with Soy Factory. You can hear the other two on our website at www.mediasanctuary.org. Now, a talented musician and artist from the Capital Region is Jordan Taylor Hill, and we are so excited to welcome Jordan to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's good to see y'all. How y'all doing? Great. Can't complain. We got a musician, a superstar in here, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Thank you. How y'all feeling? Uh, Great. Good. Great. Better now. <laughs> yes. So your music and artistry, it encompasses so many different uh facets it, it um you have a large range of the kind of work that you do so mm -hmm. could you please introduce yourselves to our listeners yeah sure i'm uh jordan taylor hill i'm actually from long island but i've been here since like 2011 but uh i'm an artist musician a songwriter I, i'm trained in traditional drumming and dance from west africa i've been to senegal and guinea a couple times and i've been studying the music and and dance there and uh yeah i kind of incorporate that into my own music and teach and uh i saw you at a show recently i saw you at a show recently and uh at uh, yeah, oakwood community center I think maybe you got to see a little bit of kind of what i do with the both traditional stuff and original stuff so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh what made you want to get into the type of art that you make? You talk about music and dancing. What made you want to get into those two things? Uh, probably as far as the drumming and dance, my first study abroad, uh, which was in 2011, as you know, with your father, who's one of the professors that was there, uh, as, as well as uh, Mr. Professor Sheck and Madame Eloise Briere. And yeah, I spent three weeks in Senegal and just, that was my first uh, glimpse into the culture of drumming and dance and, you know, just seeing at a, at a super high level, I was like blown away. I'm like, I don't know if I want to drum, I want to dance, I want to sing, I want to do everything right now and stuff like that. So that kind of just, you know, set the, the tone for, for that. Yeah. But I always knew I wanted to be a, a performer and stuff. You know, as a kid, I was watching music videos and you're, you're probably too young to know about TRL or anything. But, I was seven know, in 2011. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was even before 2011. So, you know, artists like, for me growing up, like, uh, I would say like Michael Jackson, Usher. Oh, and, come, you know, on. Rock like, come on. Come on, let's be We like know that. Usher. And we huh? know those people. Yeah, yeah, you know, but it's a, it's a different time. Now it's like you can go on your phone, you see stuff, but, you know, back in those times, there were 10 music videos that were going to be played on, on TRL and everybody's tuned in at the same time when there's a, a new video out. And, and, yeah, I just was always like that's what I, I want. And, yeah, having this new outlet of traditional drumming and dance has kind of been a, a great way to kind of express myself in in uh, in new ways and, and learn about myself, too, as a, as a musician, as an artist, and a, as, a, as a person. You know, there's so much culture that's wrapped inside the music and, and, and dance and stuff like that that you have to learn those things before or while you're, you're, you're studying. So it's not just about learning a movement is learning a culture, you know, and customs and stuff. So. so you 
traveled to Senegal, and then you saw the music and dance, and now you're teaching it mm -hmm. to others. So what is that? What has that process been like for you first to feel it in your in your skin and your bones enough to like mm -hmm. feel it for yourself? And then what is it like to teach it and pass mm. it on to our community? Mm. Yeah, it's uh it was a lot, you know, it was a lot of mistakes along the way and stuff. And, uh, but I'm grateful to, to have had teachers from the continent early on that were here, you know, um, whether they're Ivorian teachers or if I was just going down to the city and taking what I can get from classes like once a month, learning from Senegalese dancers. And there was actually a, a, a Capoeira class after that. So I would stay for like four hours, you know, and I'd be just hurting on the bus riding back up but it was worth it because that's what i love doing and I'll, I'll still go down as much as i can just to to be in that space because you know um because yeah it, it's partly about the the fellowship as well as the, the practices itself um <laughs> you touched a little bit about it being worth it what makes it worth it to you what inspires you to create your art and take the long bus rides or go through the grind? What makes you want to do that, get out of bed in the morning? Mm, I just love it, you know? I really just just love it. And it's like, it's a it's an interesting thing as an artist because you, a lot of times you're basing stuff off of your feelings and, you know, it, it's like a, sometimes it's a tough thing to manage because, yeah, you want to be, make sure that you're, you're there, you're taken care of emotionally and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I still to this day... I, I don't look at a, a three-hour bus ride as like a, a huge income. I'm grateful to be able to, to do that, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I know there are people that might never get the opportunity to even leave their city. So it would be crazy of me to think like this part of it is, you know, something other than a blessing. So, yeah. So you mentioned that recent event, uh, performance at Oakwood Community Center, you just uh, showcased some dance, some drumming, and some mm -hmm. hip-hop. Mm -hmm. So what are the range of ways that people can see you and mm -hmm. participate mm -hmm. and perhaps learn from you mm -hmm. around either these immediately coming days or just generally? What are mm -hmm. some things mm -hmm. that you offer? Yeah, I do uh, weekly classes. I teach in a lot of schools. I'm doing a, actually a workshop tomorrow with the... Um, so Wash, tomorrow being on Saturday. Right, the 20... 24th. 4th. It's <laughs> uh, a replay on Monday morning. So, okay. But there will be other opportunities. There definitely will be. I have a show in April, April 5th at, uh, at No Fun. And that's in, right here in Troy. Um, but uh, yeah, I do weekly classes at Albany Barn. So I have information on my website about that. Classes in? Uh, drumming and dance. So they're both 45 minute long sessions. And yeah, it's kind of just me sharing what I've learned through the years and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's uh, for all ages. And, you know, I have more information on my website. Uh, Which is? Jordan. Oh, it's my name. JordanTaylorHill.com. Yeah. <laughs> For people that haven't heard your music or heard the sound you try to make, can you describe what genre of music you partake in and what your sound is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was we were just talking before. I used to do radio, and I would say for my radio show, I would say playing some of the best hip hop, world, and Afrobeat, and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what I'm still playing to this day. You know, you'll hear traditional music. Um, I think that's how I opened the show. I just did like a dance, a traditional dance into some drumming, um, into a, an original song of mine. So I like to kind of take elements of traditional, you know, um, music and whether it's a cadence for a clap, like, you know, a cap way to clap or something like that. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can use that for my song or something like that. Or, you know, maybe I can use these instruments in a, in a new innovative way and combine it with a, a piano or something like that. Or, you know, so, um, I think that's what, uh, part of being a student is too. It's like, you know, learning these different things and, um, making a way for your body and your mind to express it in, in what feels right for you. Just continuing on that idea of inspiration, uh, what are some ways that you continue to get new influences and mm. get inspired to create other lyrics or mm. new beats? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. I think um, there's a lot of things. I think life, right? That's probably one of the, the big things. And just kind of making it a practice. It's like, yeah, just I'm writing songs pretty regularly. And, you know, it's a certain point. I'm going to share a couple of these songs and, you know, um, and then keep it going. Like that's just always going to be what I'm doing. And, and, you know, taking classes, going to shows and seeing other artists and learning new techniques and stuff like that and trying to apply them in ways, you know, for myself is, it will definitely be a, is, is inspiration too. So, well, it was, we had an amazing time talking to you. I, oh man, that's quick. <laughs> I'm going to go listen. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to. I think yeah. we've got time for another short question if you want to wrap one in. <laughs> I always want to know future plans. How do you plan to use your music to and s- help make the world a better place? <laughs> man, uh, that's a good in question. The shortest man. time you can answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just being my authentic self, you know, and spreading that joy that I have and, and the feelings that I have and, you know, sharing that and, um, and yeah, just remembering that it is all a blessing to be able to be sharing the music and dance and everything that I love so much. So, yeah, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. Huh? <laughs> Jordan Taylor Hill, it has been such a pleasure. Do you have an online presence beyond the website that you mentioned earlier? Uh. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. It's all my name, Jordan Taylor Hill. If you type in like Taylor Hill J, you might find a random model who's not me. But if you type (laughs) in my full name, Jordan Taylor Hill, on most platforms, it'll be there. And uh, yeah, so. Thanks so much for coming to Hudson Walk Magazine. Thank y'all for having me. This was great. This was awesome. I got to come back and like DJ for y'all or something. Mm, All right. (laughs) Let's keep talking. Let's put you on the schedule. Let's do that. And to end our program, this is for the filmmakers out there. There's an opportunity to submit your short film to WMHT. And for the film watchers out there, the short films will be showcased this summer. TV Film is Upstate New York's Indie Short Film Showcase. And their open call for short films is still open. And to know more about what they're looking for, WMHT's content and engagement producer for education, Catherine Rafferty, joins me now. So great to have you back on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us more about TV Film? 
Sure. So it is WMHT's independent short film showcase. It's been airing for uh, 15 years now. This We're going into our 16th season this year. Um, we show films from any genre and uh, as long as it's under 25 minutes. So and the, the show airs every summer uh, from June until August. And we interview the filmmakers about their process and the story of their film. And it's really about showcasing the art of filmmaking. So we're funded by the New York State Council on the Arts and filmmakers do receive a stipend for airing their film in the show. So you mentioned all genres, but is there kind of content that TV film is looking for for the short film showcase? Well, the filmmaker has to be a resident of of upstate New York, but the film doesn't have to take place here. So um, it could be a film that uh, is about any topic, but we do have um, some restrictions just because of our FCC licensing. Uh, We can't show anything very extremely graphic, uh, violent, or um, have language that is inappropriate, inappropriate language. So we do follow the FCC guidelines for that, but um, we are pretty uh, risk-taking with this program, I would say. Uh, so we show a lot of content that's unusual from our uh, everyday programming. So we're really looking for artists that uh, have a unique vision. Could you give some examples from submissions from past years? Yeah, we have had... Um, both like documentary and narrative, uh, different genres within narrative, like even horror, um, you know, within reason. (laughs) And um, comedy is also popular. We had a really great historical drama last year. It was a story about a a residential boarding school. These were three uh, Kiowa boys who had escaped from the residential boarding school. So it tells the tale of of that um, made by an indigenous filmmaker, Jeffrey Palmer. He's a professor at Cornell and worked on that film last year. And he's going to be also making that into a feature. So uh, some of the films that we show are sometimes short film concepts for a feature length film. So you get kind of an idea of uh, the what could be potentially a longer story. Um, and we have also had some filmmakers who are emerging new filmmakers um, and it might be one of their first films that they made. So we kind of run the gamut of like early career to very experienced filmmakers. So when you say early career, say a 10-year-old listening has just created a short film, is that accepted? What level of expertise does somebody need to have? Um, We don't have a requirement for expertise level, but we do require that the filmmaker is at least 18 years old at the time of when they made their film and that they are a resident of upstate New York. Um, And we define that in our Uh, eligibility requirements as the counties that are north and west of the New York City area. And that starts with Dutchess, Ulster, and Sullivan counties. So once somebody has submitted a film, maybe it gets chosen. What what are the next steps and when does it get aired on the program? 
the filmmakers will be notified in April if their film was selected, and then we will set up a time to interview them either in the studio or on Zoom. And the films will air starting in the last week of June, and they will be weekly episodes through August. Will this be streaming online as well as available on TV? Yes, it is uh, available for streaming on demand online and on the PBS app, as well as um, the films in this season will be available for three years on the platforms online. Can you talk about this being an opportunity for a filmmaker's trajectory? What does it do for a filmmaker? Why is this an important platform to utilize? Well, it w- it is a great opportunity to distribute your film. If this might be um, one of your first films that you made, um, we do have a great audience on public media, and it will be available online. So that even broadens it more. And filmmakers could also benefit from being introduced to other local filmmakers in the area through the program. Some previous filmmakers that have aired their their films on TV film have um, gone on to create film collectives in the area, find other collaborators, uh, and also some have you know taken these short films that might have been proofs of concept and um, made the longer version of that, whether it be a, fe- a feature movie or a television series. So as a filmmaker yourself, what excites you about this showcase? I think it's really exciting to um, learn about how many people in the upstate New York area are filmmakers, are independent filmmakers, and get to see all all different perspectives on different um, issues, either like local uh, films, some, some local films that are documentary might teach you about something that you hadn't heard of before or you know if it's a drama we've had you know like I said we've had some historical dramas so um you could you know learn something from like a a narrative drama perspective um and it's also very entertaining it's just fun it's a fun show to watch because you get to learn about how they made their film I think that's a unique insight that our program offers because uh, we actually get to ask them questions about how, how, why did you make that decision with your film? Why did you want to make this film? What inspired you to write it? So we will hear that and more in the interviews with the filmmakers. Is part of the process of interviewing the filmmaker to fuel next year's um, submission process? Um, I don't think they necessarily correspond to each other, but I I do tend to. So I conduct the interviews, and I do tend to ask a lot of the similar questions. So a filmmaker who submits this year might you know, look back at previous seasons interviews and get an idea of the types of questions that we might ask them. Also, I should note that we air um, only a portion of the interview in the actual broadcast episode of of TV film. 
and we will upload additional segments from the interviews on different topics on our website and those are exclusive to our website so uh, please do look out for that as well because there's a lot more to be said about these films that we can't fit into the episodes themselves so you can get a little bit more extra behind the scenes on the website. Catherine Rafferty, thank you so much for speaking with us about the TV film Open Call. So what is the best way to learn more about either the submission process or the films as they come in ready to watch? You can go to our website, which is wmht.org slash tvfilm. And if you are looking to submit a film, you can go to filmfreeway.com slash tvfilm for our entry page. It is free to enter. Um, and we have that open until 11.59 p.m. on February 29th. Well, thank you so much. Would you like to leave our listeners with anything? One thing I want to add about TV film is that it's a great community to be a part of. We have seen filmmakers come back year after year and grow with the program. So it's great to see their um, filmmaking journey over the years uh, through the show and they become alumni of TV film. So um, if you're interested in uh, getting to know more local filmmakers and sharing your process with the community of how you make films, uh, this would be a great opportunity for you. For the complete eligibility requirements and more information, visit wmht.org slash tvfilm. That concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is also Sina. Amazing. Appreciate you. We thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. That's a team effort. Special thanks to Mark Dunley, EP, Ellie Irons, Sina Bazila Hickey. And you, Jacob. And me. Also, shout out Jordan, my guy. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. You can find all of the stories from today's episode on our website on our uh, uh, and through our Hudson Mohawk Magazine podcast. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in.